Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. All the feels on this one. Because that's what the science says. Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of Real Everything. I'm all about loving the skin you're in and being healthy inside and out. Let's talk about what this looks like in real life. Facts do not have opinions. And I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne of thepaleomom.com. I believe that scientific literacy is the key to improving public health. Just don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. Science is true whether or not you believe in it. Self-love is really about self-respect and acceptance. Welcome back to The Whole View, episode 467, whereby we actually know what numbers shows are. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if you noticed, listeners, but for the last few episodes, because we weren't sure where the Cloud 10 launch and exciting news was going to go, when it was going to happen, all that kind of stuff. We've just been numberless for a while, but we are now officially back on track. And I want to thank everyone for their positive support and feedback and encouragement about how exciting it is that we have an opportunity to reach more people. And I haven't heard a single person be like, Ugh, commercials. Like, you are such amazing people that you understand the importance of how incredible opportunity it is to reach more people and for us to have a show that is supported. Um, <laughs> not just like for the past nine years, um, us as in, in this little bubble, but that we're kind of trying to elevate and reach more people and you're Willingness to participate as a community in that process is wonderful, and we're very grateful for it. I can't believe how many people I've already heard from who have listened to our podcast for the first time. Like this is they're probably their second episode if they didn't start going going back in the in the feed. Um, and that I just want to say, like, welcome. We're so happy to have you. That is so exciting to me to already be seeing the 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 ability to to reach more people with our uh witty science grounded what what's it that we do here something like that something like that witty science puns banter banter maybe maybe information maybe information sometimes like today <laughs> dear listeners where we have 11 pages of notes <laughs> <laughs> We better get into it because this is going to be a doozy. So this week's episode is driven by Grace's question. And Grace wrote, Dear Stacy and Sarah, I'm a longtime fan of your amazing podcast and both of your blogs and took the AIP lecture series a couple of years ago and learned so much. I've listened to the whole series at least three times and your voices have become like part of my brain now. I feel so much attachment to both of you and I can't tell you how much I appreciate the contributions you've made to my life. This is the part where I say, oh, Grace, I'm so sorry. Um, But also, what? What a wonderful, nice way to start. I'm like, okay, whatever you need, Grace. Whatever you need, we're in. <laughs> I I love the idea. I'm like both like a little bit disconcerted, but also like super in love of the idea of somebody hearing our voices as they're making decisions. <laughs> like, it's like, what would Sarah and Stacy do? Um, we're definitely on also, opposite shoulders, though. Let's be really clear. <laughs> uh-huh. That's super true. All right, so you're going to listen to the Stacy shoulder or the Sarah's shoulder. That's the, that's the trick. All right, Grace continues. My problem is sugar. I follow a maintenance AIP and my meals are great. All veggies and seafood and healthy starchy veggies and working on organ meats. But I have this one kind of ridiculous habit that I haven't shaken. Namely, I have always been a sugar lunatic. In my 20s, I drank a million Diet Cokes a day and ate just hordes of candy. And over the years, I have tried to stop eating sugar a number of times, but find it so hard. 
Even during the elimination phase of AIP, I struggled. I would eat Powerballs and have spoonfuls of honey from the jar. Now I'm eating healthier than ever um, and have for years, but I eat sugar almost every evening, honey and tea, dark chocolates and paleo treats. And if my kids have candy around, I find it so hard not to eat. I know it is not rational to eat AIP except candy of all things. Anyway, I'm hoping you might be up for a new sugar show. I feel like maybe I just need to really get why sugar is so bad. I was wondering if you could update on how sugar does affect the microbiome, inflammation. I'm hoping that maybe I can get some info that I can hang my hat on. Love and appreciate you both so much, Grace. Part of this new change is you're going to hear us give some actual commercials. What is formally called ad copy in the business. And here's a couple of commercials with things you might have heard us talk about before. Stacy Toth here, your resident regulation expert. My favorite non-toxic personal care brand is, wait for it, based in science. I love that Beauty Counter tests skincare eight times and makeup nine times for safety and performance against 23 human health endpoints, including heavy metals, hormone disruptors, and contaminants like carcinogens. We've talked about what we discover in products after they're on the market, like lead, benzene, PFAS, and asbestos. In my personal care, no thanks. I want to use a brand of products that tests every single batch for safety. I do love science. And I personally have tried the overnight resurfacing peel and the sunscreen from Beauty Counter. I love them both. And I also really appreciate that Beauty Counter is committed to the earth. It's so cool that they're a certified B Corp working to zero carbon footprint with entirely recycled or recyclable packaging. Absolutely. Though none of that really matters if a product doesn't work. Um, I remember your reaction to how well the peel worked the first time that you tried it. That's what made me <laughs> want to partner with them. I've seen fantastic results personally, changing my skin quality, reducing inflammation, reversing the signs of aging, and just generally being a way for me to feel good in the skin I'm in. But honestly, I love even more seeing you be happy too. If you have rosacea, eczema, dermatitis, KP, acne, I'm not a medical professional, so I can't give medical advice, but what I can do is tell you what's worked for many people that I've worked with, including my own family, the science of why that might be, and my tips and recommendations, both with products and lifestyle. I offer free consultations. Just email me, stacy at realeverything.com, or grab my favorites. Check out realeverything.com slash beauty counter, and use code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off your first order. If you choose to shop in one of their stores, Denver, New York City, or LA, or at beautycounter.com, I appreciate you choosing Stacy Toth as your consultant at checkout. And then I can send you a thank you. No, it's not Columbia House situation, no commitments or auto shipment, just a regular online shop like anything else. And if you aren't sure what you want, I'm happy to send a sample. Listen, I'm not only the Beauty Counter fan club president, but I'm also a client. <laughs> Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Are you sure that you didn't really write Grace's question so that you could have this talk with me? Because I've... <laughs> I feel like that Surprise might be what happened. <laughs> um, actually, I think that's a, a wonderful place to, to start because I think, Stacy, you and I both have um, a history of disordered eating, uh, including binge eating disorder, and both you and I sort of ride the sugar roller coaster. So I want to start by telling Grace, like, I super relate to this challenge. Like, I super relate to how addictive sugar is and how how much of a struggle it can be to not let a little bit kind of spiral out of control into a snowball of badness. And I think I want to add on to that, which I wholeheartedly agree with, 
um, to also say that this is the ubiquitous reminder that if that is something that you are struggling with, and I use that word with hesitation because if you're not struggling, it then I don't want you to feel like you should be struggling um, because that's not the goal. But um, if it is something that you feel like you're also on this roller coaster, there's nothing to feel like guilt or shame about. Um, this is the reminder that we do the best that we can with the tools and the resources and the knowledge that we have. And sometimes for me, it's almost always started by stress or by mm-hmm. menstruation. And then it's a matter of like needing to figure out ultimately how to get back on the wagon that I want to be on. Not because society says or blah, 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 blah. But we're going to talk about the science and I know that that science is happening. And therefore, I want to make decisions out of respect for myself and my body and how I want to feel. Um, and those are the things that I, I want to kind of have resonating and reminding us as we walk through this, because I think it's really easy as we walk through things to demonize. And I think, Sarah, I don't want to speak for you, but I know that we both um, come from this diet culture that we talked about last week. And we don't want to be those people that are like, you know, one spoonful of sugar instead of making the medicine go down is going to ruin your health. Like, (laughs) you know, that's... (laughs) That's not where we're coming we're, from. We're actually intentionally going to talk about how that's absolutely not true and that uh, sugar in moderation can absolutely fit into a healthy diet. So we're actually even going to talk about the science behind uh, why that like all or nothing mentality is not even correct. hundred percent. I just, but until we get there, we're going to walk through some science that's like, sugar can be badness. And you've probably heard even us say years and years ago on this show, really extreme statements like it can be as addictive as, um, well, I don't want to go down that path because I know we've got family listeners, but I think (laughs) the intention (laughs) is understanding that what, whatever we're going to talk about, whatever you're going to hear, someone can frame something in extremes, no matter what. And, you know, you've heard us talk about on the show, different kinds of things like, um, that work for us or that don't work for us. But even within the confines of this isn't something I consume every day, I might still enjoy it because it's for my mental health or because, you know, it doesn't completely derail me. Um, sugar is one of those things, right? And so we need to work within the confines of what works for us and giving ourselves grace that even if something isn't working for us, that it's okay to work through how to get on a track you want to be on and you're not going to forever stay on that track. Sometimes things are going to happen and you're going to need to get yourself back on. And that's just the way it is. I personally think, and I'm, I'm sure Sarah, you're going to get into some of this, that it's because of our background. It's because of my gut bio microbiome. It's because of the history that I've had for so long before I started prioritizing as Grace did vegetables and fish and, you know, all these kinds of things that like, that's my body's go-to. It's its coping mechanism for stress. This is another thing that I've realized, right, is that over time and trauma and stress, this was something that I went to that created a chemical reaction to help alleviate some of the feelings I was having. And knowing that is super helpful for me, but it's not helpful for me to have guilt about that's what I do. That's what I'm trying to say is that if we're going to guilt ourselves and stress out about it, it's only going to make things worse. So I just want to, I want to take that from you, whatever baggage you're carrying, let me take it off your back and I'm going to set it over here for a minute and then we're going to talk about science. (laughs) I am so like just nodding away, emphatically agreeing with everything that you're saying. Um, I also want to point not just Grace, but um, everyone listening to some relevant previous shows we've done. So we actually talked about consuming real sugars instead of sugar substitutes. We kind of did a summary of that in a fairly recent show, episode 459. Um, and I want to you know, emphasize that as we're talking about uh, the issues with sugar in excess, 
um, and where sugar in moderation can fit into a healthy diet, that sugar substitutes just are not a good trade. And we've already covered that on the show. 459 is the place to start. And we've also talked about the role of moderate carbohydrate intake and insulin quite a few times on the show. Um, definitely places to start are episode 365, where we looked at the links with low carb diets that were actually high fiber and how those still caused um, undesirable changes to the gut microbiome. Uh, episode 329, where we talked about the link between carb intolerance and gut health. Episode 305, where we talked about insulin as a super hormone and why um, having uh, eating so low carbohydrate that we don't secrete much insulin can be just as problematic as being insulin resistant. And episode 437, where we talked about the concept of Nutrivore um, and what that looks like in terms of the whole diet, that's going to be sort of thematic again today. So I want to start answering Grace's question by talking about how high sugar intake is harmful to the health. What are the mechanisms behind that? And it basically, the root of, of that comes from a process called cellular respiration. So when we consume carbohydrates, most carbohydrates break down to glucose um, when we digest them, and sugars are short carbohydrates. They're either one or two sugar molecules big compared to starches, which can be hundreds of sugar molecules long. So they di are digested really quickly, absorbed really quickly, and the glucose contained within can have a really rapid impact on our blood sugar levels. Insulin is then secreted by our pancreas that helps shuttle that glucose into our cells. And then that glucose is fed into what's called the citric acid cycle or the Krebs cycle to be converted into the molecule that's actually the energy currency for all cells. So it's the molecule that actually drives any chemical reaction that needs an energy input in order to happen. So some chemical reactions, you just put chemicals together and they react with each other and you get a, a different chemical at the end. Some chemical reactions, especially the controlled ones that happen in our cells, um, these are sort of, sort of broadly categorized as biological processes. They're controlled by enzymes typically, and that is a process that requires energy. So that energy molecule is called adenosine triphosphate or ATP. The process of converting glucose or, you know, there's other sugars that can um, once they've been converted into the right precursors, fats can be used in this process. Um, but when we make ATP, the, that process uses oxygen and produces carbon dioxide. That's why it's called cellular respiration. And one of the byproducts of cellular respiration is the production of what are called reactive oxygen species, or they're also called oxidants, or they're also called free radicals. Those are all different names for basically the same chemical class. So these are highly reactive molecules that contain oxygen. So they oxidize things. And oxidative damage uh, is inflammatory, it drives aging. Um, and if we have a, an excess in these reactive oxygen species being produced, um, then that's when we start to get all of these different signals for, for driving driving inflammation, activating the immune system. Actually, fun fact, our immune system uses uh, reactive oxygen species as part of um, one of the ways that it can defend us against pathogens. That's a very controlled system. When we consume food, we produce reactive oxygen species. That just happens no matter what we eat. Um, it's something called postprandial oxidative stress or postprandial inflammation. The word postprandial meaning after eating. It is just a thing that is a side effect of being a complex multicellular form of life that requires oxygen. Um, and so, you know, in that sense, just eating is inflammatory, right? Uh, all foods cause this production of, of oxidants. But what's interesting is that there are certain dietary patterns or eating patterns that increase the production of these um, oxygen radicals. Uh, so overeating in general, it's the, it's the biggest driver of the excess production of oxidants. Um, but the other thing is high carbohydrate, especially refined carbohydrates. So those are carbohydrates that are super easy to digest and break down into glucose really quickly, and that includes sugars. So basically, the more glucose we consume, especially if we're consuming it in the context of 
not very much fiber or protein or fat to help slow down that digestion and absorption into the body, the more oxidants are produced, the more inflammation we have every time we eat. And on top of all that, there's there's a uh, and a really important context, which is insulin sensitivity. So this happens in everybody. So perfectly healthy people will have this, you know, slight tick up in inflammation every time we eat, but it's very exaggerated in people with insulin resistance. So that would be um, something like metabolic syndrome or type two diabetes, or um, often other indicators of increased cardiovascular disease risk will also fall under this insulin resistance sort of category. And that's what's really interesting is it's uh, completely proportional. So the more insulin resistant you are, the more inflammation you'll have every time you eat, and the more exaggerated that will be when consuming simple sugars and refined carbohydrates because of the blood sugar sort of spiking aspect of that in the context of not insulin not working properly to shuttle those sugars into cells. I really think it's important to emphasize here that we've got a lot to go through, so we don't have time to go through this in detail, but studies have really shown that insulin sensitivity is actually more closely related to lifestyle than diet. So there's this sort of misnomer that um, you make yourself insulin resistant by eating tons of sugar. That doesn't help, but actually the things that are driving insulin resistance are more like high stress, sedentary lifestyle, inadequate sleep. Um, we've, I've wrote a, a detailed article about this that we can link to in our show notes. And obviously, if our listeners want us to, to dive deep into this, we can cover it on a future show. But I think it's sort of important in the context of talking about sugar as inflammatory and being more inflammatory in the context of insulin resistance to make sure that we're not oversimplifying insulin sensitivity as being related to that sugar intake. I'm so glad you mentioned that. And as a listener, I would like to request a follow-up. Um, <laughs> I, But I do think that I, I also want to point out the obvious here, which is that we have many sleep shows. We have all these other things that we've talked about. Um, when you're lacking sleep, you crave more sugar, right? So mm-hmm. these things are not independent of one another. And I think I hear so many people quick to demonize the food and just give up the food, but not address the lifestyle factors. And I know for me personally, that's when the food will come back if I'm not addressing the root cause. And I am just really glad that you kind of pointed to that because I, I think if it's happening to me, I'm not the only one, right? So right. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And I, I think it's super important. And I, I know how important it is to both of us to kind of dispel and bust those myths. And I do think that it's something we've tangentially talked about in a lot of different shows, but is worth diving in deeper. But let's finish laying the groundwork first, right? For sure. Yeah. Um, So there's more context than just uh, insulin sensitivity in terms of how glucose consumption can drive inflammation. So we also consume a ton of different uh, nutrients that are antioxidants, Um, certain vitamins, most phytonutrients are antioxidants. Um, We also have antioxidant enzymes. Those tend to be mineral-based, so we're for short of those specific minerals or the amino acids that are really important to make those enzymes. We might not make enough of those really important antioxidant enzymes like superoxide dismutase. Um, And so depending on our sort of antioxidative capacity, um, how much tolerance we have for glucose consumption can shift. So the problem really becomes when the balance is out of whack. So we're consuming more glucose and producing more um, oxidants than we have the ability to, um, what's it's called scavenging uh, through antioxidants. So the, the term scavenging um, is when a, an antioxidant can basically neutralize an oxidant before it has the capacity to damage something within a cell. So that's another important context is that you know, within so Grace's diet, you know, eating tons of vegetables, she's going to be eating tons of phytonutrients, which are antioxidants, and that's going to give her an advantage when it comes to to sugar consumption. So that's also really important to emphasize. 
And interestingly, sort of the last piece of this puzzle, and this really also kind of brings us back to why sugar substitutes are not a great idea, um, in addition to their impact on gut health and hormones, depending on which sugar substitute you're talking about, is that insulin itself is inflammatory. So it's not just the oxidants that are produced by cellular respiration when we consume excess uh, sugar, but it's that release of insulin that goes along with it. So this has been measured in some some really clever ways where they've like infused sugar and insulin in different proportions to peep into like healthy people and then measured the inflammatory response in response to uh, something that causes inflammation like lipopolysaccharide, also called endotoxin, which is a, a toxin in the uh, cell wall of gram-negative bacteria like E. coli. Um, and also there's an exaggerated res stress response that happens with this um, as well. So having too much insulin drives the stress response and also drives inflammation. So that whole system really wants to be regulated. And it, it's helpful to kind of emphasize here that this is, uh, the body is really well adapted to moderate carbohydrate intake and modest sugar intake. All of these things start to fall apart when that starts to, to increase, right? So it's high sugar intake is the problem here, not, um, you know, a healthy sort of carbohydrate intake that includes some sugars. I think what's interesting for me is I feel like I'm having a little of a breakthrough and understanding of this stuff. And I mean, I've been reading and learning about this for 11 and a half years since, I mean, you've been doing it longer than that because you went, you went to college, you know, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> I went to college too, but I was, I was um, writing research papers on, you know, TVs and movies. So it's a little different for me, but um, I, I don't know. I, I think my brain is kind of finally wrapping around these ideas of, I mean, we did that insulin show as being like insulin can be good for you. And I think even as I was listening, I was kind of like diet culture stuck in my head, but it's going to kill you. And now I'm understanding, no, without it, like you have major problems. That's why type one diabetics need insulin, right? Like mm -hmm. you actually need it. It's a good thing for you. But, um, that too much can be overwhelming. And there's a lot of different things in our body that is the same way, right? Like you have requirements and then you, if you get too much, your body gets out of balance. And I really try to avoid that word, like just do things in moderation and balance. Cause I think that it's abused a lot, but um, I don't know. It's kind of clicking for me that that is um, something that is related to the inflammation, right? Like you can't go without, um, because then we see all these other health problems, but also like if that's the um, major source for your body, then you're going to create other problems as well. And so um, I guess one of the things that I'm interested to learn more about is how that would affect the gut, because one of the things that we know and we've talked so much about is how your microbiome feed off of that your little friends feed, you know, they grow off of the food that you feed them and your bad friends like sugar and your good friends like fiber is kind of how it's been phrased. And that feels like diet culture too. So I'm curious what the science says and kind of like how we can reframe that thought process as well, if that makes sense. No, for sure. I think um, one of the things that you emphasized is uh, the idea of moderation. And I think both of us really dislike that everything in moderation phrase because it's used um, it's used to rationalize typically poor choices um, in a way that is you know not um, it's still not a uh, a sort of balanced uh, sort of mindset in terms of of food right so it it tends to not lend itself to understanding the best choices, and then living our lives imperfectly within that framework. Um, so I'm going to give you a different term that I, I really like that's the science word for it, and it's a U-shaped curve. So most things in biology follow a U-shaped curve. And what that refers to is basically that there's like happy, medium, perfect Goldilocks zone in the middle where everything is awesome 
And then if you have too little, something bad happens. But if you have too much, something bad happens. And that's exactly what we're talking about when it comes to sugar consumption uh, and sort of carbohydrate consumption in general. Um, that is yet another thing that falls under that U-shaped curve. So instead of going, oh, moderation, you can start saying U-shaped curve. It It's super nerdy, but also it's kind of epic, I think. I really love that concept. And it also reminds me of um, a talk that I heard from Chris Kresser a decade ago, which really stuck with me as well, which is, um, also like that bell curve of um, where we are with kind of like it when your body is sick, what your body needs versus then when your body is well and what it needs, which I also mm-hmm. hear you talking about a bit here, right? So it's for all sure. coming together for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about that. Um, does it apply to the gut microbiome though? Like that yeah. same kind of concept? Look at that science showing up everywhere. So so what's really interesting to me is that this has only quite recently been studied. So how sugar impacts other biological processes has been studied in much greater depth than how sugar intake actually impacts gut microbiome composition. So looking at how it changes the balance in the gut microbiome, the diversity, and that Um, the growth of like really important species or the growth of pathogens. Um, And so I I pulled, I think, three relatively interesting studies to talk about. Um, The first was a 2017 study. And as a reminder to our listeners, we always put all of the links to the studies that um, we talk about in our show notes. So if you want to go read the actual study, that's there for you. Um, And what they did was they, they fed rats for quite a long period of time, four months, which, you know, in a two year lifespan is a really long time. Um, a high fat Western diet that either had 5% of the diet as added sucrose, table sugar, which is half glucose and half fructose, or 5% uh, fructose um, or their control. And then they looked at how that impacted, you know, various metabolic um, markers, right? They were looking at things like weight gain, glucose intolerance. And then they also looked at the gut microbiome because there's a very strongly established link between gut microbiome composition and diabetes and obesity in a way that, I mean, they've done animal studies where they've um, driven, you know, they've they've taken um, one group of mice and fed them a, what's called a Western diet. So it's a basically a high fat, high refined carbohydrate diet. and made those mice obese. And then they've taken another group of mice um, and fed them a regular diet. And then they do what's called a fecal fecal microbiota transplant. So they take the, basically the gut microbiome from the obese mice and give it to the healthy mice and then the healthy mice gain weight. And so um, again, sort of in the context of what we've talked about on this show about obesity, not being the health problem itself, but being a symptom that something else is out of whack. And reminding our listeners that we've already covered on the show that um, obesity is not synonymous with poor health um, and that we on this show have a body positive approach. So we're focused on health behaviors, on healthy diet, um, and not on weight itself as, um, as a pathology. So keeping all of that uh, sort of framework in mind here, um, seeing changes in the gut microbiome related to that confluence of high fat and sort of high refined carbohydrate intake with added, um, basically added sugars in the diet is really, really interesting because it is driving changes in the gut microbiome that are then impacting metabolism. So this is a way of sort of looking at what is the biological process behind this type of diet that can be leading to health problems like type 2 diabetes, like cardiovascular disease, metabolic syndrome. So what this study showed is basically a a pretty big shift um, in the gut microbiome 
whether they had sugar or fructose. But what was really interesting at a 5% of total diet level was that the, the change was actually more pronounced in the sucrose addition than the fructose addition. And that is sort of contrary to a lot of other studies that have shown that generally, you know, fructose can be very problematic for the gut microbiome. And actually the next study that I'm going to, that I pulled does sort of confirm fructose is, is more problematic, but we need to also remember dose as one of the sort of, um, uh, uh, important parts of this study because how much sugar versus how much fructose versus how much fat in the diet, they're all inputs to how that's impacting the gut microbiome. So in this study, they showed that um, there was a pretty big change in some really important probiotic species. Um, and they showed that there was an increase in some sort of known problematic species. Um, and so that was driven by the sort of confluence of high sugar intake uh, with sucrose being worse than fructose in this study uh, with a high fat diet. And also, you know, these rats also became uh, insulin resistant and obese as sort of is expected when you, when you put uh, rodents on these types of diets. Uh, another 2017 study, so published the same year, um, sort of a similar design, but what they did was they took, in this case, it was mice. They were, again, fed this sort of high-fat Western-style diet, but then they either had regular water or they had water that was enriched with 30% fructose. So instead of looking at a, at a study where the added sugars are like 5%, this was looking at added sugars. It was basically almost a third of their calories came from fructose. So interestingly, the animals that had the sugary water ate slightly less food, but their caloric intake was way higher. And what they looked at was not just changes in the gut microbiome, but also changes in the intestinal barrier function. So looking at leaky gut and showed that that combination of a high fat Western style diet with a lot of calories from fructose and 30% sounds like a lot, but it's actually sort of similar to, um, sort of high fructose corn syrup sweetened beverage consumption in Americans, especially in teenagers. So it's it's not out of the, the sort of realm of what we're seeing in people. And um, what they showed was like really dramatic. So uh, there was basically about a three times increase in uh, a measurement of leaky gut. There was um, big changes to gut barrier, uh, what's called morphology. So basically the structure, they showed that the mucus layer um, was much lower uh, with this combination of high fat diet and a high fructose intestinal immune function, the immune barrier in the intestine were reduced. Um, measures of the gut microbiome showed huge changes in the sort of balance between uh, the two most dominant phyla of bacteria in, in the gut, which is a, a really well-established indicator of gut health. Um, and they also showed that bifidobacterium, one of the most important uh, genera of probiotic bacteria in the gut, were like 330 times lower when you added fructose, like crazy huge change. So this, again, it's it's a very different sort of experimental design because it's looking at higher fructose consumption compared to looking at sucrose versus fructose in a much lower proportion to the overall diet. Um, and it, it when you start to kind of pull those threads together, you can sort of see that there's... Um, there, certainly there's changes with lower consumption, but things get really dramatic with higher consumption. And uh, the question always is, okay, rodent studies are, are fascinating. Rodent studies are really good for helping us um, sort of drill down into mechanisms. So it's, it's uh, a, a human studies, epidemiological studies show that there might be a link, but you can't say for sure that two things are linked until you understand mechanistically what's happening. What is the chemical reaction that is driving A to equal B? And so these types of studies really help 
to sort of show that. Um, and gut microbiome studies are a lot harder to do on humans. Um, but there has been one human study. Uh, this was published in 2010. And uh, what they were actually trying to do in the study, they were comparing uh, eating normal Cadbury chocolate. So basically they had healthy young volunteers and they just gave them chocolate to eat for six weeks, um, gradually increasing. So it was 50 grams a day for the first two weeks, 75 grams a day for the second two weeks, and then 100 grams a day for the last two weeks. And they were comparing regular sugary milk chocolate to um, chocolate made with about different kinds of sugar replacers. Again, this show is not talking about uh, sweeteners, so we're kind of going to skip over that part of the study and just focus on what happened to sort of the control group that was consuming sugar. It's helpful to kind of understand like what where this is in terms of intake. 100 grams of Cadbury milk chocolate has 56 grams of sugar in, in it, which is around 10%. Um, a little bit over 10% of uh, of added sugar calories. So it's just slightly above. And again, there would probably be some added sugars in these volunteers' regular diet as well. So this is probably ticking them well above that 10% added sugars rule, which we are going to dig into in detail um, pretty, pretty soon. Um, and what was really interesting was that in this sugar group consuming chocolate, they had some changes in the gut microbiome that would be considered good and some that would be considered probably not great, um, but they had some really positive changes. So they had an increase in two different ruminococcus uh, species of bacteria that are important probiotics and an increase in Fecalibacterium protsnitsi, which is one of the most important probiotic species in the gut. So fascinating. Um, and then they also had an increase in uh, two potential pathogens. They're normal residents of the gut, so they become pathogenic when they grow out of balance. So seeing an increase isn't great, but certainly the increase wasn't enough to be alarmed, like it wasn't causing problems in these people. And they had an increase in uh, production of a short-chain fatty acid called butyrate. That is a, um, a product of normal bacterial metabolism that is associated with all kinds of health benefits. So high butyrate production is really great. So in the human study where, you know, intake has kind of a, you know, it's certainly higher than this 10% of added sugars cusp, but it's not the 30% diet from fructose, as in the mouse study, the changes in the gut microbiome overall were not alarming, and some of the changes were actually indicating something good happening. That's important to emphasize. That's probably not because of the sugar. It's probably because of the chocolate itself. It was just so going to ask. beneficial. Yeah. Yeah, because we've talked before about my desire for chocolate when I might have a magnesium deficiency, uh, mm -hmm. depletion. For example, it is a common craving for women who are about to get their period, which can deplete magnesium and chocolate has magnesium. If our body is that intuitive, like, and it can be, right? Like you can crave banana if you need potassium and different things. Um, and so there's antioxidants, there's mm -hmm. um, healthy fats, although... I don't want to get into <laughs> what kind of chocolate it was, but you know, I, it's just, it's fascinating to me. Like if someone had done this exact study on the same amount of sugars, but not with um, a food that had any nutritional benefits, like, I don't know, gummies that weren't made with gelatin, but you know what I mean? Like what right. the result might be. Um, and it is interesting. I will say for myself and I would encourage listeners to, to consider this, like, do you crave different kinds of sweets at different times? And what might that be telling you? I think one of the things that is interesting to me about intuitive eating, which is something we have talked on the show before I did like a live panel. Was that last year? I don't Time is very Ooh, weird lately. <laughs> I don't yeah. think I can time anymore. I don't think that's yeah, a skill no, that's ever coming back. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, <laughs> I'm like, that whole period of time is just lost now. Um, but what was, you know, it's something that I believe in passionately, trusting our bodies and listening to our bodies. But with the context that 
there are hyper palatable foods that can trick our bodies. And especially if your body is not in a place where it's healthy to give you the right cues to begin with, that can be problematic. And that is not something that's accepted by that movement. And that's, that's the difficulty that I have with it. Because when we look at the science and we can see like, there is benefit to some of these things, but there's also foods that are out there that were created for the sole purpose of wanting you to just eat more and more and more of them, right? And can our brain and our bodies really compete with that, given that um, ours were created to indicate to us what we might need nutritionally? And it's some of these foods are void of nutrition, but we're moving on from that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it's worthwhile to emphasize that all three of these studies really help to, to draw a picture where um, it's not just about the sugar. So, for example, in that second mouse study, when they did a control diet with 30% fructose, they did not see those problematic changes in the gut microbiome. It was only that combination of high-fat Western-style diet and high-fructose consumption, right? We saw in the human volunteers, oh, by the way, I totally volunteer for any study that just the only thing I have to do is eat chocolate every day and poop into a container a couple of times. That sounds great. Um, but uh, but they also, right, the, they were actually benefiting, even though that type of chocolate is fairly low cocoa, um, and it's the cocoa and chocolate that is the, the beneficial compound, um, they still overall saw benefits to the gut microbiome, uh, even though it was increasing their sugar intake. So what all of these kind of together show that the gut microbiome is a super complex ecosystem, we already knew that, and that it's not just about how much sugar, it's also about the phytonutrients, the vitamins, the minerals, the types of fats, right? Omega-3 fats and monounsaturated fats are really good for the gut microbiome. It's about the fiber content. Um, All of those things are really, really important. And probably at the end of the day, if the rest of the diet is healthy, sugar is not, it doesn't look like sugar is going to have a big impact. I like that summary. Um, And I do think that one of the things that kind of like resonates for me is that um, in your statement is that if, if the body is healthy, blah, blah, blah. Right. And having come from the history that we talked about last week, for me, I have found not to think about myself from the place of like, but I do all these things. I think that's one of the mentality things that's really difficult for a lot of people. And it sounds like maybe Grace might be feeling that too, right? Like, but I'm doing all these great things. Um, therefore, I'm going to say my body is and I'm going to do whatever. Like I've learned um, because of so many other things that we've talked about on the show of things that have influenced my body's health that I, a, I didn't make conscious decisions of because I was a baby or, you know, like different, different things like that. And then also going into um, the different health challenges and choices that I made when I was younger. I have to remember that that was the majority of my body's life. And that, that's yeah. what it's like going to veer towards sometimes if I'm, if I try to assume the best of my body, I have to also know my body's going to do what it falls back on. And so I'm, I'm glad we talked about that, but I want to be the first to kind of step up and say like, that doesn't work for me like that. I think, you know, I need to think of um, what are the choices that I'm making today affecting my body kind of every day. Like I can't just for myself, I have learned, and this is all an N equals one equation. Like if I lean into something the way that a healthy person would be okay doing. And I'm using quotation marks when I say that, right? Um, it My body doesn't react the same way. Maybe because I'm those mice <laughs> that was under the, <laughs> the bad study for so long. And now, you know, I'm still working towards needing to get away from that. And one of the things that I've realized, and I know we're going to talk about it, is when I prioritize nutrition sufficiency and proper sleep and hydration, those are the three things that like are really difficult for me personally. Somebody Mm -hmm. else might have other things that they need to work on. But those are the three that fall away really quickly for me. And instead of telling myself I need to consume less sugar, if I tell myself I need 
to get more nutrients in. Like I need to focus on consuming more nutrients, my body's desire and telling me to do these things because of its history and all these sort of things falls away so much easier. And I think to get to Grace's question, I, I, I can't suppose to tell Grace what to do or what not to do. But what ultimately I would be asking myself is like, why do I want that sugar every day? And no, would be asking myself I am Mm -hmm. asking myself let's be real right like why am I wanting that every day and one of the reasons is because it's it's satiating some sort of form in my brain but it's also like keeping me from being satiated in other ways with um, the nutrients that I need or the sleep that I'm getting like you know I'm supplementing that same sort of release the physical sufficiency in a different way, if that makes sense. So maybe we can talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that one of the the big concerns with how much more sugar, uh, I mean, not just Americans, but Canadians, Europeans, um, basically like all Western countries um, have sort of increased over the last 40-ish years, um, one of the big concerns with that is the displacement of more nutrient-dense foods. Because when we consume sugar, generally, there are some exceptions, generally, we're not getting a ton of important sort of vitamins, minerals, essential amino acids, essential fatty acids, phytonutrients in that food. Again, there are exceptions, and and we'll kind of come back to that at the end. Um, But that's been one of the main concerns is, and there have been studies that have basically looked at how nutrient intake goes down as sugar intake goes up. So in the context of uh, the standard American diet, you know, the the types of things that uh, dominate a grocery store, typically the more refined food is, the less nutritive value it has, but the more added sugars it's going to have. So that's one piece of the puzzle, but it's also helpful to sort of focus at least a little bit on the fact that processing high sugar intake can also deplete the body of some nutrients, um, five in particular that are, are well understood in terms of the mechanisms of how that links to high sugar intake. And, and Stacey, I think one of the things that um, you kind of mentioned tangentially that I think is sort of helpful to solidify a little bit for Grace and our listeners is that these are different mechanisms. So um, for somebody, depending on your genetics, depending on your lifestyle, depending on right your hormone regulation, all of those things, the impact of sugar on your gut microbiome might be higher or lower. And the impact of that uh, oxidant production relative to uh, your body's antioxidant capacity might be higher or lower. And same with these nutrient deficiencies that can be driven by high sugar intake. So which mechanism is dominant can be highly variable person to person because there's all of these other different inputs into all of these different systems. So I think it's really helpful to kind of say it's not it's not one or the other. It is that all of these things can be happening simultaneously to some degree. And that's where kind of going over that cusp of of sugar intake that can be a little bit variable person to person uh, you know, some people will start to to feel it and other people won't. So the, the nutrients that can be depleted by high sugar intake, um, vitamin D, um, this is specifically related to high fructose intake. So high intake of fructose increases the expression of an enzyme that degrades vitamin D, um, but also decreases the expression of an enzyme that's important for synthesizing vitamin D. And then because vitamin D is important for facilitating calcium absorption, that can have a downstream effect on calcium levels as well. So high fructose intake uh, through that mechanism can lower vitamin D levels and calcium levels in the body. Um, Magnesium is um, uh, depleted very specifically with high sugar intake and um, elevated insulin. So it's it's very much that... um, insulin sensitivity and high sugar intake. And so it what happens in that case is it drives the kidneys to excrete more magnesium. Um, so we end up depleting our stores of magnesium that way. Um, chromium is uh, basically also excretion um, by the kidneys is increased uh, in a high sugar diet. 
There was one study that showed that eating a diet of 35% simple sugars, which is quite high, but not out of the realm of what about 10% of Americans are consuming, that um, chromium excretion went from 10% at a normal level to 300%, which is a 30-fold increase. That's very, very big. Um, and then the last nutrient that can be depleted uh, from high sugar consumption is vitamin C. And that's because glucose and vitamin C actually use some of the same transporters to get into cells. So when we have high levels of glucose, it can, it can basically slow down the absorption of vitamin C into our bodies. So those are all nutrients that uh, our needs for them increase the more sugar we're consuming. And also high stress, right? It's also... I think what I'm trying to wrap my brain around is um, the the stress response to desiring the sugar is also depleting, um, for example, magnesium. Right. So it's mm -hmm. like it's like this and double vitamin hit. C. Yeah. 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 It's like this double. Yeah. Hit. So we we um, I don't have the the show numbers in front of me, but we've actually recently talked about vitamin C and the stress response, as well as all things magnesium, including its relation to the stress response. Those are the top two nutrients that are depleted, especially during chronic stress. And what's really interesting about this is that, you're right, Stacey, the, the stress response does drive an increased appetite, but also a craving for energy-dense foods. So for some people, they'll crave more sugary foods. Other people will crave higher fat content foods. Um, some people will be both. And I know we've talked about it on the show before, but there have been some studies that show that consuming these energy-dense foods can be um, somewhat neuroprotective or at least protecting from some of the, the stress behaviors associated with chronic stress. They've studied this in rodents. And so there's, there's something that the body's trying to, to do to protect itself with these cravings. The issue is when stress is sort of unrelenting and it never goes away, uh, we end up really, you know, driving these different biological processes that are overall inflammatory, right? They're increasing, uh, things like triglycerides in the serum, which is a uh, cardiovascular disease risk factor. Um, but your your point about stress being part of this equation is is spot on because the stress response is so tied to nutrients, is so tied to appetite, is so tied to cravings, and um, and can both drive increased sugar intake, but also magnify the problems associated with increased sugar intake. I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne, and my best resource for learning all the ins and outs of the autoimmune protocol within a rich and supportive learning environment is my six-week online course called the AIP Lecture Series. And the next session starts Monday, September 13th, 2021. I know you've been teaching this course for a long time and your students absolutely love it. Can I read some of those testimonies that you received from your last session? Oh, sure. Go for it. Okay. Joy wrote, you have impacted my life in such a great way. You are truly an inspiration. Your amazing research and phenomenal presentations of all your wisdom and knowledge has enlightened my world and has given me new hope. I am eternally grateful. Aww. And Heather wrote, this has been an incredible class. Having been on AIP for a year and a half with the guidance of a dietitian who was well-versed in the diet, I wasn't sure how much I would get out of it, but I have learned so much and I have refined my diet in multiple ways. Your answers in the chat are so thoughtful. The money was so worth it. Thank you. You are doing incredible work and I would recommend this class to others in a second. I'm just so proud that this course is making such a big difference in people's lives. In this six-week course, I teach the entire scientific foundation for both the diet and lifestyle tenets of the autoimmune protocol, and I provide tons of tips and strategies for implementation, refinement, troubleshooting, and mindset. And I also provide individualized guidance and support and connect with every single student within a private Facebook group for the course, and I personally answer every single question posed during every session. Um, today is the last day for early bird pricing, but our listeners can always use the code WHOLEVIEW, that's W-H-O-L-E, 
E-V-I-E-W, to get the best discount on the course available. You can learn more and enroll on my website, thepaleomom.com, or go directly to thepaleomom.com forward slash go forward slash A-I-P-L-S. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.